Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Nocturnal Berlin, a city that really doesn't sleep. Um, I'm here to introduce this episode of Park Day, which features Chris Pettit. And I thought this would be a very apt place to do the introduction. Um, I've been a fan of Chris's work for years, and after talking to Ian Sinclair, managed to get in touch with him through Ian. Thank you, Ian, for the um, hookup. And uh, I went to Golden Lane, which is the estate next to the Barbican by the same architects, Chamberlain, Powell and Bon. And me and Chris sat by the children's playground and had a very, very fascinating discussion, which you're about to hear. Um... Berlin is apt because Chris is the director of Radio On, one of my all-time favourite movies, which was produced by Vim Vendors. Chris gave Vim uh, the script while he was interviewing him, which is exactly the kind of stunt that I would pull. Well, in fact, it's exactly the kind of stunt that I have pulled before with um, people like Adam and Joe. Uh, still waiting for the feedback, guys. Um, so... Um, Chris's movie Radio 1 is very, very Germanic and very, very good. Chris is also the author of uh, novels like The Butchers of Berlin and this year's Ghost Country. And mentioning uh, Ian Sinclair, Chris has worked with Ian on numerous projects, including London Orbital, where they drove around the M25. One of the things we wanted to do in this discussion is link... Chris's various interests in underground uh, culture, film and books and find where they all come together and I hope you will enjoy this as much as I did. It was a real pleasure to meet uh, someone who I really looked up to uh, and we talked about Jonathan Meads as well. You're going to love it. Um, as always, if you like Park Day, please do like, subscribe and review. It means a lot to me when you do all those things and I will be very happy if you do them. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Gardens of Golden Lane Estate uh, on the fringes of the City of London. I'm here today with Chris Pettit. Chris, thank you so much for joining me here in Golden Lane um, where you're staying uh, at, at the moment, aren't you? You're, you're based in Rotterdam these days, but you're over over here in London at the moment. Yes, I came. Uh, I came over for a couple of weeks for the first time in eighteen months. And prior to that, I've been I've, I've been away really for, for more or less two years. Yeah, it's strange to be back. And you've obviously seen, yeah, maybe some changes in in the UK. We were talking about your latest novel. Um, which is kind of a state of the nation novel. Um, I guess, yeah, you've seen seen things go <laughs> maybe from bad to worse. I'm not sure how you would characterise it. Um, well, I, I sort of voted with my feet when I left. I just thought this is 
unspeakable mm. um, and um, having having written three books set in Germany in the 1940s I kind of wanted to do something contemporary and um, I came up with a title which was Shooting Mr. Gove and I started writing in 2020 the story started on the 1st of January um, and then by April we were in lockdown so I was having to kind of improvise as I went along um, and yeah it's, it's, it's a it's a our island story um, state of the nation um, and I delivered it I think at the end of 2020 and I mean they liked it enough to publish it but they freaked out about the um, the actuality of it <laughs> so you know names had to be changed which in the end is fine but um, uh, it's I think it's a pretty good summary uh, yeah. as a result of which it's been completely overlooked <laughs> So tight time for everyone to to read uh, read that novel. And one of the one of the yeah, things it's, called, it's called Ghost Country, by the way. Ghost Country is the yeah, yeah the, the new uh, uh, not even available from all good bookshops. But, uh, <laughs> we need we need to make sure that it gets uh, it gets gets stopped. Um, but Chris, one of the things that we wanted to uh, we wanted to talk about in this podcast was the the intersection, I guess, of your your work as a writer and as a filmmaker, and then. I, again, I don't know how you, how you would describe it, but this kind of more underground, subversive, uh, artistic work as well. How do you see all those parts of, of what you do coming together, and, and, and how do you see that the, the intersection of all those uh, all those well, pieces of the puzzle of what you what you create? I mean, they're all part of the same work, mm. but the trouble is they don't get seen as such because the films are seen as films um, mm. there's the middle period of quite intense experimentation with Ian Sinclair which at the moment is sort of hived off into a space which is very rarely visited um, the books <coughs> excuse me um, I mean the books are influenced by cinema mm. and when I when I started writing Robinson which was the, the first novel I wrote um I, I just thought, well, I'm not a novelist. I don't pretend to be a novelist. So I treated Robinson as a kind of prose film, yeah. which at the same time was impossible to turn into a film because otherwise it wasn't being written as a kind of audition for a, um, for a film. And um, uh, the next one I wrote, The Psalm Killer, which was set in Northern Ireland, I think I started off with the idea of making a TV series about an ordinary copper in um, Belfast you know then you have to have the meetings and you have to explain and in the end I just thought well just get on with it just just write it and yeah. I, so, so it got written as a book and it was the I think it was the nearest I've had no it was a bestseller um, and um, congratulations in I think it was number one in South Africa <laughs> for, about, <laughs> for about a week anyway um so yeah, I've always seen yeah. um, the two together, and then during the middle period, um, when I was working with Sinclair, we—I mean, I, I, you know, I was writing books as well as making those films, mm -hmm. um, and they, yeah, and, and, and Ian has a film background, so the films were very much informed by by the writing, mm. um, and then over the last ten years, um, I. Um, I came up with a... Well, prior to that, Ian and I had a project called The Perimeter Fence, which didn't really get anywhere, um, perhaps deliberately. Um, and then that sort of morphed into something called The Museum of Museum's Loneliness. Yeah. Which um, has been pretty active. Uh, and in fact... There's a, there's a new university being founded by um, a bunch of disaffected Cambridge academics, including Robert McFarlane. Um, and the Museum of Loneliness is part of it. So it has, you know, it has justified its existence. Um, and, I mean, the other thing about the work is that it does... I wouldn't say it was ahead of its time, but, but 
however many years later. You know, Radio On came out recently on um, Blu-ray, mm. as did uh, An Unsuitable Job for a Woman, which was my so-so adaptation of a P.D. James. But, you know, these things are still alive. Um, and Psalm Killer was republished mm -hmm. four years ago with an introduction by, a very nice introduction by Alan Moore. So it's all there, but... but um, the kind of mainstream press and the kind of literary press uh, as with Jonathan they don't really bother to um, um, piece the work together so you know Jonathan's oh, you know that man who does telly yeah um, but of course he did well I was talking to him when he had an art exhibition of his screen in fact I visited him in the gallery when he was doing his the studio he was doing his screen printing for which I wrote the introduction indeed indeed yeah yeah. Um, um, yeah, and then well, yeah, obviously novels. Where we were talking about you, you, were, you said you'd read uh, Jonathan's uh, new novel. Yes, and and uh, it's I think it, it's a very very long but brilliant mm -hmm. um, exercise in taxidermy. Yeah, in that um, all the characters are fucked and stuffed. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's 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 a great novel. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like living in, in, in Britain right now, really. <laughs> mm. um, and he, um, you know, it, it's great, but it'll be, mm. you know, I'm sure it'll be completely overlooked. Um, yeah. Because no one will be bothered to read it. Yeah. And, but, um, it, well, that's, it's obviously a shame, isn't it? Because we have all this talent, um, un, you know, sort of working under the radar. Um, and I, I do think, I think there's an appetite for it. Um, you know, when, when I go to Ian Sinclair talks or events with Jonathan Meads, people are there and people are interested. And people, I think people who like that work like it a lot. Um, you know, those, those things have always been really important to me as, you know, your writing, Chris, and your films have always uh, loomed large in my, my consciousness. Radio One is a film that I love so, so much. And in fact, I was... I think I mentioned to you I was doing a book talk in Bristol and um, I was talking about uh, Radio On and the, the kind of evolution of the cityscape in, in Bristol, the, the picture that you painted back in 1979 is obviously a very, very different city to how it is, how it is today and um, yeah, there's lots of, uh, lots of kind of lessons that can be, can be learned from that. One of, one of the things I wanted to talk to you as well about, Chris, is this idea in your work of, um, of movement. Which, which you've talked about um, in, in interviews before, this, this idea uh, that maybe, you know, Ballard mentioned as well about the, the importance of the forward, forward movement. Mm -hmm. And I see this in your, <coughs> excuse me, I see this in your, in your, in your fiction and in your films as well, that the forward movement is, is, is a kind of key to it. Um, so, you know, you will see maybe a camera in a car moving, uh, which I think is incredible, or, you know, you see a sort of paciness paciness in your writing do you want to talk to us a little bit about how you see the, the importance of movement well um, before Radio On I'd done nothing in terms mm. of uh, any kind of film at all um, and uh, you wrote about film didn't you I wrote about film for time, time out, out for, yeah. for several years and with um, I mean with Radio On I, I, I made the obvious connection that um the camera and driving are forms of forward projection mm. and that, that with the with the windscreen and the road ahead and the camera in the back seat which is the preferred position you kind of got a double projection um, and the other thing was with the, with the music, with the invention of the whoever just put the cassette recorder in a, in a radio in the car um, was a genius and mm. it meant for the first time you could kind of program your own music it wasn't yeah. the radio you could you could you could choose stuff so that was really just the premise of the film um and when it came to writing novels um because i was i, I wasn't interested in kind of class or even particular character um and it was more drawn to genre. Um, 
I thought actually the writing is kind of like a series of tracking shots mm. you've got to keep it moving um, to, begin, to begin with I wasn't that good at dialogue I think I've got better at it so you, you just thought you know, the, 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 biggest, the biggest problem writing a book is getting the people into the room um, and it's not as easy as it sounds mm. and I also don't think that I'm a natural storyteller so I have to work quite hard on the uh, I think I'm quite a good mechanic <laughs> and you have to you have to work quite hard on the on the, on the mechanics. Yeah. Um, and um, most of the um, you know most of the writing is descriptive. It's 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 what you would see if you if you had a camera. And there's not not a great deal of interiority to the characters, but um, um, which again is is you know the habit of genre. Um, so that in a way the novels have been more uh, generic than the film work. Although having said that, I did Miss Marple, a Caribbean mystery. Which is <laughs> as generic as you can get. <laughs> what was it like doing uh, doing that one? You kind of it was a it was a BBC job, mm. and basically you got hired, um, which in some ways is quite nice. Um, because you, did, you know, it, it, it wasn't something that you worked on for years and, and, and had to try and develop. They just said, you know, do you want the job? And you turn up and you direct it. And um, it wasn't that much fun because um, it was it was BBC crew and they'd all worked together. So the director was um, you know, there as as a guest, um, <laughs> and they very much had their own. Um, way of doing things and I, I like Joan Hickson who played Marple but um, the, the the tone of the English I mean ours was set in the Caribbean but the tone of the, the St Mary Mead ones kind of there was an, always an element of camp uh, and my one instruction to the actors was I don't want any camp in this right <laughs> and, did they and, listen and, uh, yeah, they 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 did in the end, and and um, uh, you know, and you got the old cars, which were always spotless, and the Caribbean we couldn't have the old cars, so that was a huge relief. And we had a great cast. I mean, we had um, had Donald Pleasance, T. P. McKenna, um, Sophie Ward. I mean, um, uh, you know, in in a way, the thing takes care of itself. I mean, you 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 think all right, you can, you know maybe introduce 20-30% of stuff that another director might not um, so I didn't want it played for laughs yeah it, it's funny with a lot of uh, a lot of that retro retro TV which I I can't stop my can't stop myself watching and I'm, d- I'm just uh, thinking about uh, there was a BBC program in the 70s called Gangsters I don't know if you ever watched watched this it was a Pebble Mill Birmingham no. Uh, production. It was, I was just discussing this the other day. I'm doing um, Peaky Blinders before its time. It, well, it, yes, it, and it was, and it was the most camp thing ever. This incredible, overlooked, bizarre, uh, bizarre show. Um, my uh, my friend is. Oh, who was the main actor in it? There was, um, was it Ma- Morris. Yes, Morris. Um, he went on to do a boating thing. Exactly. He was in Howard's Way. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Back in uh, Golden, Golden Lane Gardens with Chris, Chris Pettit. Um... You probably hear in the background this incessant roadworks, little beeping and some cutting, and a very cute children's playground that we noticed as well, which looks like something from uh, from IKEA, maybe a very very new looking uh, playground. Uh, it looks yeah, it looks like it's just just been freshly built. But under fives, now there shouldn't really be an apostrophe between five and the S. No, I don't think there should be. This is actually one of the, this is one of the things which. Um, really gets me as well whenever I see whenever I see bad grammar on signs or misspelling I always think well you only had one job yeah. <laughs> you might yeah. get it right yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah we, we well I didn't didn't talk much about the surroundings as well this is um, a lot of people know about the Barbican but this is um, by the same architects Chamberlain Powell and Bond it came just before the Barbican um, very beautiful mid-century estate there's a swimming pool and tennis courts um, my favourite thing about this is how you have the blue and the yellow and the red. It makes me think of almost like a children's storybook or something. It's very, um, very Nordic as well, isn't it? it it's, it's Nordic and Nordic it's, modernism. It's, it's light compared to the Barbican's kind of heavy. So yeah, it's much more in the style of early Corbusier. And funny you say Nordic because there's a um, pub on the corner. The Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Shakespeare, yeah. Now, w- when when I first came in 2006. Um, it was very it was very Norwegian really it was kind of it was like being in a bar in not that I know bars in Norway but I thought <laughs> it was very kind of Scandinavian uh, very low key and then about 2012 it sort of reinvented itself as something much more continental barista widescreen TV mm. loads of music um, uh, little bowls of peanuts for which I charged a fortune mm. um, so it became almost like an outpost of Shoreditch yeah. and I went in uh, well I hadn't been in a pub for two years so I went there the first night I was back for a, a Guinness for which I was charged six quid well, there's probably a and, bargain these days well, to be honest it was the first time, first time in my life where I thought I can't actually afford the second one Yeah, um, but it was back to um, yeah all that kind of continental pizzazz had been sort of stripped out mm. uh, and you were back to your kind of um, Anglo-Saxon barmaid who sort of said um, you know enjoy it love well that, that's Brexit for you isn't it we're mm. go, going back to um, mm. supposedly <laughs> British values <laughs> good old British Guinness oh wait uh, <laughs> yeah it's 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 funny how funny how uh, funny how things change mm. I, was um, just, I was just going to say about uh, Golden Lane Ian Nairn wrote very well about it I um, love Ian Nairn yeah he he, he, um, he said that the kind of um, uh, the interconnecting spaces and the, the, the walkways and, and um, the different levels uh, really make sense mm. um, and in a way that you know other better known estates to him didn't I think he mm. he compared here favorably um, against Roehampton um, yeah and you know we I was here for 10 years and it's um, it's very nice but it started to change because the city having having developed um, you know the office area it was only a matter of time before they moved to the fringes which is where the only kind of residential stuff is so you can't see it but well you can see the top of it yeah um, the um, there was a police dormitory 
between Golden Lane and the Barbican, which was not designed by um, it was designed by an independent architect, mm. but it was clearly and Jonathan Meads wrote about it. It was it was clearly designed to fit in to the sort of spatial context. Um, now that came up for the lease. The head lease ran out, so the police were kicked out. Taylor Wimpy came in and and put up a. Um, Hold on, did the police have to evict themselves? No, no, they <laughs> they were they were kicked out. <laughs> right. Um, and uh, Taylor Wimpy came in and you know horrible, horrible, horrible design. Mm. And there was a big, a lot of uh, local action against. But it was a kind of foregone conclusion and. Um, um, Stuart Home, who lives in um, lives on my corridor, he was very active against it and, and uh, digging up stuff on um, shenanigans in the kind of city finance departments. And um, so it's sad. And there's another you know, that that block there, yeah, that's new. So the whole so the whole scale of the estate is starting to be overlooked, and it rather reminds me of uh, the Westway when we made Radio On. Mm. It was this, you know, perfect what Ballard called a stone dream. Yeah. Um, and 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 it, it, it really was elevated. Now, um, it's completely shrunk because the, the whole scale of the thing has changed because of the, the buildings that have gone up around it. Um, and there's the building I really like. I, I don't know what it is now, but it was on the left as you come in. Um, uh, into town and it was always very distinctive because it was kind of on its own and it just sort of sticks up is that the battleship building yeah yeah and it's hard it's hard by the road um, well that's on the poster isn't it yeah which i have which i actually yeah. do have oh, at home right. i don't know if i should admit that but um. <laughs> um yeah yeah and um you know it, it's I mean, its significance has diminished because mm. of, of, of you know what's gone on around it, and I think the same is happening here. Yeah, you, you see that in the sort of encroachment of the of the city. We've been in these very very nice piece, well, quite peaceful gardens when uh, when it's when it when it when the environment chooses to be quiet. We've got lovely trees and some uh, quite parched grass, but um, yeah, you can kind of feel there's more development coming, and yeah, the, the city kind of kind of growing but uh, yeah I do feel like the, the Barbican and Golden Lane are a kind of uh, a kind of um, haven um, well uh, John, uh, Jonathan Mead said um, uh, it wasn't that modernism didn't work it was the maintenance mm. and I mean this, this estate is one of the few which has been maintained um, although I yeah. suspect yeah I mean the city would probably like to demolish it and um, you know build something else but um, it and you can see how, you know, the, the, the um, how an estate is supposed to work in terms yeah. of kind of you know communal living. And so I think seeing the, the beauty in that as well, which which uh, people like Jonathan and uh, I, I love the way uh, Ian then talks about um, Eros House in Catford, um, which I, I put in put in my novel. He said a monster sat down in Catford. He's got such a a, a, a kind of way. Way, way with words. I'm surprised Ian Nairn could write anything, though. Jonathan said that um, he had lunch uh, with Ian Nairn and Ian Nairn drank 13 pints, <laughs> which seems completely, uh, completely over the top. It's always def- definitely prob- problematic. Uh, but his, I, I think his, his kind of books and his writings are being um, rediscovered uh, by, by new generation people like Owen Hathaway, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ch- champion... Uh, yeah. Ian Nairn's work and you, men- you mentioned there Stuart Home um, may- maybe maybe listeners won't be familiar with his work I remember reading uh, things that Stuart Home had done when I was 16 and being absolutely blown away by that punk uh, kind of aesthetic yeah. that Stuart has very confrontational pro- provocative yeah. um, I might, might have to tro- trouble you for his uh, email address after this but yeah Stuart, Stuart Home's writing is very uh, very very insightful incisive on on the city and that real real kind of uh you know movements at the edges yeah you know i remember learning about all kinds of craziness from him like the um i'm trying to remember the bit, you know p- people who all renamed themselves luther blissett yeah. almost like kind of italian anarchism from the from the 60s 
Um, Stuart's very, very interested in that, that kind he's, of He's very funny, field. too. He is, isn't um, he? Yeah. And uh, he, he, he produced this book. Um, I can't remember the title now. It has, it's, got, it's got the word Denizen in the title mm. because um, the, new, the new development is called Denizen. So mm. um, uh, several of us contributed to kind of sort of nightmare... Um, Nightmare version of the um, um, the development. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I wrote something for that which <laughs> I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> we'll have to uh, have to dig uh, dig that one out. Yeah, um, edited by Stuart. So, um, and it's yeah. got, as I said, it's got Denison's in the title. And I feel like um, people say to me, "Oh." We, you write about architecture all the time, but you're an architecture writer, you're an architect. I think for me, I don't know if you feel this, Chris, I, I feel like setting, landscape, buildings, cities, to, to me they just seem like an intrinsic part of, of whatever it is you're creating, you know, whether that's, that's scripts or, or books or whatever. And it kind of, I, I kind of question when things take place in a sort of nothing, nothing world. For me... You, you know, I think the the architecture and the surroundings are really important. I feel like it's that the case for you, right? Like, you, you know, you want to describe or yeah. show an environment, a location. Yeah, because I think when Jonathan's novel Pompey and my novel Robinson were published at the same time by Cape, and um, you know, one of the senior Guardian writers sort of said not with reference to either book but he said you know now is the time for the novel of place and they you know um, Robinson was a cautionary tale about what happens if you drink too much in Soho The Hard Shoulder was a cautionary tale about what happens if you drink too much in Kilburn Um, (laughs) and you know I mean Jonathan's book was this sort of epic on um, Portsmouth Mm. Um, and I think Pompey got recognised for that, and, and and Robinson to some extent too. So, yeah, I mean, in the end, it's all about place. And um, I was never interested in that kind of sort of Mike Lee universe of kind of class, and, and um, it didn't. It just struck me as not particularly cinematic. Um, and I think it was Robin Cook who worked out that if you knock out the middle ground and collide the high and the low uh, things get interesting and I agree um, yeah. which again was why I did um, I was more drawn in, in fiction to genre although you know that causes problems because the English copper is a fairly unbelievable figure um, the English private eye is even more unbelievable so you are slightly stuck for um, well at least I always felt I was slightly stuck for material which is why I ended up doing a lot of historical stuff mm. um, mystery is always at the centre of your work isn't it Chris there's, there's often a mystery to solve or you know some, some kind of uh, question um, yeah I mean the, the um I mean, the Psalm Killer was really about the um, the secret war that my research dug up, which was between different factions of um, British intelligence, mm. um, and you know, to the extent of suggesting the um, uh, the INLA might have actually been a British creation, mm. um, and the Human Pool, which was uh, was about the role of or the mystery of money. You know, uh, during wartime, yeah, especially Swiss money. But um, so yeah, there's normally um, there's a mystery to be solved, isn't there? Like, yeah, and it, maybe it, a murder or a death or well, yeah, yeah. I think it, it's often to do with um, the mystery is in the research. So the the passenger um, was really about Lockerbie and 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 the mystery of Lockerbie and arms dealing, and then um, I had a character. Based on an actual figure who was James Jesus Angleton, who was head of CIA counterintelligence for the 50s to the 70s. Now, I had a problem with him because he was actually dead by the time that Lockerbie took place. 
so um, and I really wanted him in the book and I wanted him as himself mm. so I thought well uh, you know a spook is a spook and a spook is a ghost so he features as a kind of ghostly presence in the book I thought I was onto a winner I thought if you collide um, spy fiction with, with a ghost story Mm. You know, it's it's an absolute foregone conclusion. No, yeah. no. <laughs> we just throw in a child wizard, <laughs> kind of um, S and M dungeon. Yeah. All the publishers' box boxes are ticked. Yeah. They're happy. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, it's um, yeah, it's it's. I think it's interesting, isn't it? When when you have a a mystery at the centre of of something. A lot of the most popular podcasts are. Uh, you know, there's a, a crime or some kind of mystery that needs to be needs to be solved. I think it's it's certainly you know what grips uh, what what grips people. Um, yeah, and I just say the three German books set mm. in Berlin in 1943, 44 um, was based on an observation that I'd come across years before that um, the SS actually had its own internal affairs. Mm. Uh, so they had people investigating cases of. You know, corruption against a background of um, uh, mass murder, and I thought this was—I thought this was both sellable and commercial. And 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 so, really, the, the um, those stories are based on uh, the notion of investigation in terms of a, a totalitarian state. Hmm. Um, so that's the mystery: is is, is <clears throat> trying to understand the psychology of the Third Reich. Um, and you know the second book deals with Auschwitz but um, the thing that struck me about that was that um, Auschwitz was a garrison town Um, it was a posting Um, and I thought well I can understand that because I was an army brat and I'd been posted um, around Germany uh, in in, in Germany, in Hong Kong even Malaysia so I kind of understood the military um and so I was, I was, and also because that story has inevitably been overtaken by the kind of the weight of history. I thought, is it possible to actually recreate what it would have been like? You know, it was it was a family posting. They had wives, they had kids, they had kindergartens. Mm. Um, and I was also quite interested in the evolution of the camp because it didn't start out as a as a death centre, let alone a death factory. So I mean, in a in a kind of rather morbid way, I was I was kind of I was interested in trying to put um, or trying to reconstruct uh, what it must have been like from from one side, mm. and also the um, you know the architecture of the place. Yeah, and it was a story of construction. Yeah. Um. So, I feel like. Um, yeah, the, you know, you, as you as you said, Chris, there's a lot of um, yeah, kind of interest in the, the dark side of, of humanity, right? The, the the things that we do which are unsavoury and yeah. and uh, so just, just to finish off the Auschwitz thing, mm. the other um, uh, the other remark that led me to it was Goddard gave an interview in the sixties, mm. I think, about Piero Lefou. And he suddenly announced out of the blue that the only way to tell the story of Auschwitz is through um, that of a shorthand typist. And I thought, uh, and I'd lived with that for years. So, you know, again, mm. film feeds in. It's not just um, it's not just a literary exercise. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah the kind of intersection of uh, all those all those things coming together. Um, I wanted to ask you about how um, some of your work then has has kind of taken you uh, geographically and artistically away from uh, from Britain um, you've obviously yeah written these books based in Germany um, and yeah kind of thought about uh, places which which aren't here um, and I, I guess you've kind of had the inspiration, maybe, from from artists and filmmakers and writers that that weren't from from here. Did did you kind of 
want to investigate those you know places that that aren't here and maybe create landscapes that weren't that weren't typically british uh, i think um I think I did England pretty well in Radio On, mm. um, and I suppose Robinson was. I thought Robinson was pretty good on Soho, mm. um, and the Hard Shoulder was good on Kilburn. But on the whole, when I wrote about Britain, it tended to be set set in the past, mm. um, and also I couldn't I couldn't come up with the stories. I couldn't find a kind of. Th- I couldn't find a theme. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of went more international. And I think the the um, the writer I always liked was Eric Ambler, um, and just because of his kind of geopolitical view of the world. Uh, and the English writer I like, which McFarlane likes very much, is, is Jeffrey Household, who does kind of mm-hmm. perfect landscape and. and um, you know, rogue male and watcher in the shadows. But again, not until I came to this present book, Ghost Country, um, did I feel confident enough to produce a story which was really a combination of household in that it's a well, it's a woman hunt rather than a man hunt, mm. and um, Ambler in terms of geo- uh, the geopolitical setup. Yeah. So, um, so I think I was always sort of slightly stuck. Um, Really, in a lot of ways, to find to find yeah. to find a character that I felt confident about um, running with. Yeah, I think um, the 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 kind of pictures you paint of Britain, even when they are Britain, are not a kind of chocolate box Britain that Americans recognise, right? So, with something like Radio One, it's a very very austere yeah, it's, um, it's not Notting Hill right um, exactly which is probably one, one of the reasons that I was so uh, so drawn to it I remember watching uh, Alice in Den Staten Alice in the Cities which blew my mind and I thought wow here's an incredible way to make make films and uh, ev- everything Vin Vendors has been involved well, with well um, yeah it's been, uh, I mean Vendors uh, in fact co-produced Radio On mm. and it was through him that the film yeah. really got made but um uh, I suppose at the stage when I was seeing films, I was very influenced by new German cinema. Mm. Um, Fassbender as well. Fassbender and and uh, and Herzog and others too, yeah. because it sort of kind of came out of nowhere. Because there hadn't been any, you know, there, there hadn't been much before um, uh, they turned up. And the thing that really intrigued me about all of them was. And especially for like Alice in the Cities, was its documentary aspect of showing you something. And uh, Alice, I was very struck by because it brought back memories of the Ruhr, where I'd been posted to with my family. Um, and it was it was like discovering a kind of lost landscape. And the fact it was in black and white, absolutely perfect. Yeah. So um, yeah, they go to Wuppertal, don't they? You can see yeah. the. Schwaber Barn and, and um, we um, I think Goddard also said that that, that, that um, any interesting film has a documentary aspect to it mm. and, uh, yeah. and I think certainly with Radio On that was that was dominant and also you know, because there were lots of things I knew I wasn't good at I thought well just you know just show 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 yeah. what there is and and the world of Radio on this, I thought it's, you know, it's something you don't see in English film, and mm. the music is, you don't hear that in English film. So um, no, um, so it was a kind of fusion of, of um, landscape, weather, and music, and uh, you know what what we were wearing at the time. Yeah, there's so many so many things uh, so many things which stand out. Lisa Kreutzer's character, you, you said, didn't you? It's almost a, a kind of a follow-on, almost of her. Her, her her place in Alice in the City. Well, she, okay. she she wasn't in the film, but um, Vim yeah. Vim said to me, "Oh, you know, could you maybe maybe could you think of something for for Lisa?" Mm. And I thought, well, um, just nick her part from from Alice. Yeah. 
I love. I don't know if it's true, Chris. It, it's, if it is, it sounds like something that I would, I would do. Is it true that when you were a journalist, you kind of abused your position in a way to, to say to the vendors, "Here is a script. Here is an idea." <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was he was very tired. He was filming the American yeah. Friend. Right. And right. Um, I thought, do I mention it? Don't I mention mm. it? And then at the very end, I thought, oh, what the hell. Um, and he said, oh, do you have a title? And I said, well, yes, I do. It's Radio On. And that, that kind of perked his interest. Um, and then it was... Yeah, I mean, after that, it was, it, was, it was very kind of straightforward. I mean, I, I had no particular ambition to direct. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. Or what I, all I knew was I wasn't a vocational film critic. And I didn't want to be sitting in a preview theatre age 60. So I thought, well, I've got to get out there wasn't that much opportunity in those days to transfer from somewhere like Time Out to you know, what was then Fleet Street. Um, there was at least a tradition of you know, critics like Lindsay Anderson going on to make films. Mm. And there was also um, the BFI production board, which was there to actually um, nurture um, new talent. And I think the thing with them... Uh, why I was able to sell radio on was they were very keen to move into co-production and in fact radio on paved the way for Greenaway's success really um, so um, the options are quite limited but they were um, they were yeah. available in a way that you know I, I wouldn't know where to start now yeah <laughs> pitching you know well, tell us what we're going to see. Oh, oh fuck off! The be- the be- <laughs> you can put it better. The, it's the bane, the bane of everyone. Yeah, the the idea that you're constantly pitching. People are saying, you, you know, you, you read you read these these uh, screenplay books like Save the Cat, and it's there's you know they're saying give us the same but different. Everybody wants the yeah. same, yeah, uh, the same thing. And yeah, actually, can we think out out of the box? Yeah. And uh, I yep. mean, I um, yeah, I love the idea that BFI gave you some money. You shot it with twelve people, didn't you? Radio yeah, yeah, One, yeah, incredible. Yeah, got stinging, and I just yeah got stinging. And <laughs> I just thought, well, this is the perfect model. Yeah. Um, and I thought I'm quite happy to kind of carry on like that, mm. but that you know, that was impossible because you have to move up to yeah. um, sort of union level where you get um, you get much much bigger crews. Yeah. But um, you know, about five or six years ago, I tried to. Um, set up a film about boroughs in London right uh, you know you, you end up having completely mad conversations with you kind of move into the art world and they're only really interested in some fancy book that could be produced out of mm. the thing um, and it's all very encouraging but entirely useless <laughs> um, so and you think I, do I want to spend five years um schlepping around, putting together money from seven different sources to produce something which when you come to make it you can't even remember why you wanted to do it in the first place. Mm. So if you were if you were gonna be doing something like that again, Chris, do you think about I mean, you know, a few of the things we talked about today, I wonder if if you were making a film again, would you would you go for a kind of uh, Adam Curtis uh, sort of aesthetic when we talked about things like spies and um, you know this this sort of uh, the, the 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 interlinking of all these different things together, maybe which lends itself to those fast cuts or, or something like a Patrick Keeler approach, where you have that austerity mm-hmm. and the. I don't, I don't know what, what 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 which direction do you think you'd be drawn in these days? If you well, uh, um, yeah, part of the problem is, I mean, Ian Sinclair and I talk about it. Um, is my reluctance to film now mm. is to do with everything having been shot to death mm. uh, and the sheer image overload. Um, I mean, the last film I made was about 10 years ago, which was called Content. Uh, and it was made for more for with um, French and German money. And it was really a kind of ambient road movie. It was a coda to Radio On. Um, and I had to put myself in the film because... You know, I didn't want an actor and I do the voiceover because I don't want somebody else to read it uh, and I don't have to pay um, and 
Mark Fisher wrote very nicely about it in Sight and Sound. Um, and I th thought of doing, and it <coughs> yeah, it was quite it was quite geopolitical. We went to Auschwitz. Um, I had my son in the back of the car because he was there, and um, I got this very good German woman to do the um, soundtrack. I thought it was pretty good, but by then that strand had completely dried up in terms of getting money. Although, curiously enough, um, it's possible now that a sequel to that called Discontent um, will get made right. with Finnish money. Right. <laughs> and German money and French money. Yeah. Um, it's in the process of <clears throat> sort of, we're trying to put it together, but, um, but I have no idea. I have no idea what its outcome will be because, in a way, you know, the moral implications of driving a car now are very different <laughs> from the moral implications of driving a car in 1979. You think, well, um, I'm not sure what kind of film it will be. Yeah. Although, um, as I said to you earlier, um, my, my son Louis has, has had epilepsy since he was 12 in 2016. Mm. Um, and he was the boy sitting in the back of the car silently in content and there's, there's some way that that story has to be updated because it's, it's uh, uh, his seizures were like a metaphor for the, um, for the wider breakdown um, of 2016 with Brexit and with Trump and all the rest of it uh, the demolition of buildings over the road mm. um, so I've got to work out some way of, of putting all that together. Also, getting in Finland. <laughs> um, you have to take, yeah, take a take a trip up to up to Finland. It's a very nice place. I'm a very big, I've, never, I've never been. I'm, I'm a very I'm, big fan. I'm, I'm, they they I'm, do things well. Yeah, um, I'm sure it's very nice. And and so yeah. um, uh, well, it looks very much like where we are here. <laughs> very very similar, um, <laughs> very similar architecture. So there may <clears throat> there may be another film, and then. Um, I did try a few years ago to do um, to do an adaptation um, <clears throat> of a sort of um, crime novel, um, uh, and I involved somebody I work with quite often called Stanley Stinter. Um, and the problem with the book it was sort of set in Great Yarmouth um, with a fifteen-year gap with the same characters. So the question is, you know, are you casting eighteen-year-olds and then? Pretending they're thirty-year-olds, mm. or are you, you know, casting twenty-five and getting? I feel like they often they often cast thirty-year-olds to be eighteen, um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't see a way of it working. And and, mm. and um, I said to Stanley, I think we really need to be very, very radical with this. And he was brilliant. He came up with a brilliant script, mm. which completely freaked the writer out. And that was the end of that. <laughs> you have a bit, a bit of previous. Yeah, no, we sort <laughs> and, of, that, don't you? and we were uh, <clears throat> we were going to cast John Nettles as Mr. Porno, uh, the kind of local porn king. Right. Piers Brosnan is going to be the epically bent copper. Well, sounds I fantastic. Mean, you know, what's what's not to love? What's not to love? Exactly. Yeah. I was a big Bergerac fan. I would uh, be, uh, Isabel Huppert as the wheelchair bound. Right. Um, well, she, was in Ber she was in Bergerac as well, wasn't she? Who, um, shaved, shaves her dog. Yeah. So, no, I mean, I, I thought it was great. Yeah. But, um, no, we really. I mean, they they completely um, freaked out. Yeah. This well, maybe this maybe this is the problem these days. We we need some kind of outlet for. Uh, we're like an art, you know, arte. We need this kind of. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was our take on Midsummer Murders, and right. I think you know, if anyone actually offered me a, a gig, Midsummer Murders is probably the only one I would. Would you go for that? I would stand up for. Yeah. Okay. If if anyone's listening from. Uh, <laughs> ITV is it? Uh, <laughs> give, give Chris a call for for that one. Um, I uh, we'll, we'll round off in a minute, but I wanted to I wanted to ask you about. Well, you were mentioning about the car. I wonder what Ballard would have made of uh, would would have made of that as well, because he he loved the car. He loved the idea of movement, and I wonder how he I wonder how he'd have reacted to the fact that the car actually is isn't as dominant as he 
you know, the, he said it was the most important kind of thing. Well, he said he said the key image of the, yeah, uh, the, the 20th man century is a, a man alone driving in a car. And the riposte to that is <clears throat> the most depressing sight of, in the world is four men in a car. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be interesting to know what... Well, that sounds like an ITV programme. With four bad celebrities driving around, that's the kind of kind of stuff they they commission. It, this is biplane flyover, by the way. Can you see that, Chris? Very, uh, what's, something for the First, first World War. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, I wanted to ask you finally... Well, we touched on music a little bit, and... Um, uh, yeah, I feel like I feel like music has always always been important to you as well, hasn't it? And it's, you know, especially in Radio One, I think you know having David Bowie on the on the soundtrack to that. Um, I I don't know how you felt about. I, I'd always I've always wanted to ask you this this question as well. When I watched, then um, we are the children of Barnhoff Zoo. Uh, they also had um, they also had that David Bowie. Uh, yes, track <coughs> theorist, didn't they? they did, and I've never seen it. Yeah. Oh, um, really? No. Yeah. No. Um, um, well, the thing about the thing about all that was—I um, mean, it's a story I've told before—but the um, uh, the real problem with Radio On was the music rights, mm. because if you apply uh, through the Mechanical Copyright Protection Society, you get charged at a uh, you get charged a rate, yeah. um, and it's like a very expensive taxi. The, the um, artist gave you a very, very good deal, didn't they? So, yeah, <laughs> you we, talked we, about uh, yeah. we, um, yeah, we, we actually managed to approach all of them individually, yeah. and then we went to um, Dave Robinson at Stiff, and, and he said, "Well, have the catalogue." Yeah, and he said, "I quite like, it, I quite like it if you could push Lena Lovitch." So we put her in, and uh, I, I wanted, uh, I wanted, we went to Stiff because I wanted Reckless Eric, um, Whole yeah. Wide World, and I also wanted Semaphore Signals, which for some reason I never put in the film. I think I put Veronica in instead, mm. but um, uh, yeah. So we kind of knew what we were doing, um, and Kraftwerk was obvious because of the you know we need we needed a German connection. Um, but um, I don't know. I find now with music, I, I listen to it. I think the I think the iPod was the beginning of the end for me because you could have you could drive and you could have iPod on random selection mm. and I decided in the end I really didn't like random selection and also the other person in the car you know, other people in the car say no 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 we're not having that so you end up you end up this completely random and um, the uh, is it Alexa the yes thing, the thing you kind of shout at um, again I don't know I mean I I mean I'm not I'm not old fashioned in any way but I quite like the idea of this is my choice I'm putting it in the CD player and I'm going to listen to it yeah. rather than, than um, and I also found that my it wasn't that my attention span sort of got less but I found increasingly as I listened to music there's only a certain point in a song that I liked so apart from the Devo version of Satisfaction the only bit of Satisfaction I like is the opening riff and then after that, I don't care. I mean, um, so there's very, I mean, yeah. So it's, yeah. And, and I, I think it's also to do with the sheer um, volume or quantity of stuff that, that um, it becomes quite difficult to be selective. Yeah. So when I and when I moved to Rotterdam, I kind of, I took thirty CDs. Yeah, and I listened to them. I mean, not very often. But, but you um, didn't. You didn't get into um, what's that? That Dutch subgenre, um, Gabba, very, very speeded up. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, Dutch music is supposed to be quite good, but but there's because of lockdown, there was no kind of uh, mm. um, way of um, connecting with it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, for me, anyway, the the, the idea of, of images and music going together is quite a quite an important one and I have uh, I have kind of <laughs> this dream playlist for when I f when I finally make a movie I yeah. think okay I'm going to have have this song in this place and well the, the, the good thing about doing stuff for the BBC was uh, the copyright was you know came with the BBC mm. the, the difficulty is that it means that you can't ever put it out commercially yeah. because it, it's um, so we used to I mean we used to you know 
I did a 40-minute film on weather, Van Morrison, Bob Dylan, I did a film on air stewardesses, Leonard Cohen, you know, so on. And, and um, so you could just sort of raid the catalogue. But um, uh, I think, well, now, now it's much more difficult. But to, I mean, to round up, I think that the... Um, Yeah, I, I, th I think that most films use music very badly, um, and I try to use it well. And I think um, most films don't show what I'm interested in, um, which is, you know, often rather like Jonathan's. It's 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 what's staring you in the face. That that, that um, uh, you know, I think English cinema thinks it has to invent something which isn't actually really there. Um, and Radio On had a good when it came out in Time Out when it came out Time Out very kindly gave it a cover. It came up with a very good heading which was reversing into tomorrow. <laughs> which, which I thought was yeah. That's and, and we're still you know, and yeah. and, and um, <clears throat> forty years later or whatever we're still reversing into tomorrow, yeah. into this kind of mythical past which is, you know Reese Mogg, for God's sake. Yeah. Um, and, and as for the latest uh, shenanigans, um, you've got you've got Johnson, who is like this inflatable bath toy, and you, you've now got these debates, which are, they're, they're, they're kind of two dolls, and, and you think there's, there's no connection with any living thing, um, and you know, trust reinventing her more into a comprehensive. Um, it was closer to a grammar school, and you know, with, with, with fields and fields of playing grounds. And, and she, you know, she said she came, came from a lefty background, but it's, um, you know, it was a smart part of Leeds. And, and, uh, and Rishi inventing, you know, that, that I'm not really that privileged. <laughs> <coughs> Parents were pharmacists, and we had to work very hard, and I, you know, and you kind of, God's sake. Yeah, it's um, a, it's a strange. <laughs> A strange world that we're we're living. I think never have we needed Ballard more to <laughs> kind of cut through, yeah. cut through the strangeness of it. I I always think what what would he what would he have said about the 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 way we're we're going? The kind of yeah, the idea of moving forwards and backwards, and the te the way technology has become increasingly uh, prevalent. It's it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, were he still here, it would be interesting what his take would be on technology and mm. also on climate. Because after all, I mean, you know, he's got loads of stuff with with this kind of apocalyptic landscape, drowned world, and it is, yeah, and it is sort of coming to pass. But maybe he would be incapable of writing about it now because mm. the, the the future that he predicted is kind of on its way. Yeah, it's quite difficult to predict. I mean. I think he might have sort of taken up the idea of, of you know, Afghanistan is going to move to Europe. So mm. I think you, you might have got a good take. Um, and I'm sure he, he liked those... Um, you know, I think he'd probably go quite Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the world we're, we're heading, uh, heading towards, judging by the, the temperatures recently. Maybe, uh, maybe it, will be, uh, it will be something like that. Um, we'll, f we'll finish there I think Chris uh, Pettit thank you so much for joining me I hope you've enjoyed our, our conversation yes pleasure I hope it wasn't you know uh, all rubbish <laughs> <laughs> on the contrary it's been, it's been fantastic thank you so much for your time Chris good thank appreciate you appreciate it yeah thank you that episode of Park Date um, there's lots more where that came from and there'll be more in the future as well if you enjoyed it please leave a review um, good or bad make them funny I'll be reading out the best ones and there'll be a prize for the one that makes me laugh the most name check some trees in your reviews and leave them wherever you get your podcast from check out our website parkdate.co.uk and um, 
if you see me walking around in the park, come and say hello. I think that was the sound of someone sneezing. Um, yes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Coming up on the next episode of Park Date. It's a musical edition where everyone sings along. <laughs> no, it's not. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.